Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Lunchables Podcast. I'm Jordan Holzer, proudly part of the Believe Podcast Network, and each episode will be covering 90s, 2000s, film, TV, and pop culture. I am not alone. Each episode, I'll be having on special guests to help me relive my childhood. Thank you to Weedis for the intro music. This week, we are joined by the creator of The Weekenders and Dave the Barbarian, Doug Langdale. The Weekenders ran for four seasons from 2000 to 2004 on ABC as part of Disney's One Saturday Morning and later moved to Toon Disney. It featured four friends, Tino, Lore, Tish, and Carver, and only showed what the kids were up to on the weekend. You guessed it. It skipped Monday to Thursday and went right to Friday. This was one of my favorites growing up, and I'm so glad we got Doug to come on and talk about it. Like I mentioned earlier, he also created Dave the Barbarian, although this discussion will focus solely on the Weekenders. Hopefully we have him back, because I definitely want to get into Dave the Barbarian. Next week, we are taking it back to flat out one of the greatest shows of all time. I am talking about the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. That's right, we will be joined by Aunt Viv herself, Daphne Maxwell-Reed, who played Aunt Viv in seasons 4 through 6. It's one of the most famous recastings in probably television history. She replaced the original Aunt Viv, so we get into all of that. She was such a pleasure to talk to, and we also talk about the reunion special they are filming for HBO Max coming out on Thanksgiving and the reboot of the series for Peacock. So let's get into my interview with the creator of The Weekenders, Doug Langdale, but not before we play the intro music to The Weekenders performed by none other than Wayne Brady. <laughs> Come on! Everybody's running and the world is getting so crazy People work so hard, there's no time to be lazy The weekend comes, I'm down with that Grab your ball, grab your bat, head to the beach Grab some rings, better hurry up, just got some things Playing games, hanging out, roller coaster, there's no doubt Go to the mall, lot of fun, pizza ride Yeah, so I've been watching The Weekenders literally all day today in preparation for this. And I have to say, it holds up. Disney Plus has been promising for months to put it up, but they haven't. They say they're going to. I, I mean, I haven't. I'm, I have heard through other people. Jason Marsden says that they're going to. So <laughs> we'll see. I, I, I haven't heard anything directly. Yeah, it's too bad. But honestly, most of the episodes are all up on YouTube. There's its own YouTube channel. So it's pretty easy for the watcher to go see it. I, I, you know, I was going to watch some in preparation for this, and then I didn't. 
So I guess I'm going to test your knowledge and how much you remember here. Yeah. I, the weird thing is I probably remember more about that show than I do about like this show I did last year. So probably because this show I did last year was in space and that's not where I grew up. And Weekenders is kind of about where I grew up. So sure. I You've worked on so many animated kids shows. Is there one that you get approached, you know, by the most? Is there one that people kind of go to or is it kind of a mix? Uh, probably Dave the Barbarian is the one I hear the most, but that's partly because my wife, who today is my producer, and is <laughs> <laughs> setting up the Zoom. <laughs> has a prominent Dave the Barbarian tattoo um, that Really? That, yes, that uh, that people will will comment on and then which really, gotcha. like, I should have that tattoo, right? Yeah. But that would be weird. I feel like <laughs> I should have a tattoo of a show you worked on. I'll get a Nico in this sort of light tattoo. No, okay. <laughs> so I kind of want to go all the way back here. You grew up in Los Angeles, is that right? I grew up in San Diego. Okay. Yeah. I, mean, well, okay. I don't know. We moved to San Diego when I was like 10. So I don't know what counts as growing up. I grew up in Massachusetts and then San Diego. And before that, a bunch of other places because my dad was in the army, but, uh, but mostly San Diego, I would say. Gotcha. Yeah. It's always a tough question. I moved around myself a lot as a kid from Florida to San Diego to New York. And when people ask you where you grew up, it's always a tough answer to give them, right? You have to kind of give them the uh, 10 minute explanation there. But growing up in San Diego, I guess, further away from LA, was the dream always to be in show business or no? No, it was not. No. Uh, when I was, uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a physicist, uh, partly because my dad worked at MIT. Um, so I don't know. I, I guess it was just like I was interested in it, and it was in my head that that was a thing that you could do because, you know, my dad worked at MIT. Um, and then at some point, I realized how much math would be involved in that, and I was like, <laughs> maybe not. Then I wanted to be an artist. And then I wanted to be a stand-up comic. And then there were a lot of things that I wanted to be. This is like plan J I'm on now. This is not an early plan. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but I mean, by the time I was a, a teenager, I wanted to in some way make films. I, I, didn't, I wasn't really sure exactly what I wanted to do, but I, I, went, I, I came up to LA to go to UCLA and I was a theater major. Um, so it seemed like I wanted to be an actor, uh, but then I never really did much of that. So, um, I was in a couple of movies, but, uh, that was really later and they weren't really released. And so, uh, but yeah, no, I was actually, I was doing improv and I met a guy who was an animation writer and I had done some animation when I was in like middle school and high school. I just, it was an interest I had and I did some short films. Uh, and I had always been a big fan of animation. And I was like, I, I feel like I could do that. And he was like, you want to try it? And I was like, yeah, I'm waiting tables. So obviously, uh, and then it, it worked out. Did you get any pushback from your parents at all growing up, taking a more artistic route? It seems like, you know, they were so into academics. It seems like it would have been obvious for a young kid trying to pursue something outside of that realm of maybe engineering or, or you know, finance or law and going down a different avenue. Well, my, my dad worked at MIT in admissions, but he had an art degree. So, mm -hmm. he you know, he and he did other stuff. He was a... Uh, like advertising and production coordinator for a magazine. So he did like magazine layout 
and uh, you know some art for the magazine and uh, so you come from a creative background yeah so he I mean he did other stuff uh, I think one time my dad was like you have like a fallback job <laughs> in mind and I was like no I kind of feel like if you have a fallback job in mind then you just go to the fallback job like don't even like did like don't plan for failure so um and the weird, weird thing is like i mean since, since i was trying to be an actor for years i guess this is failure i mean this is my entire <laughs> fairly successful career in animation is sort of like a giant fail at acting so if that's failure that's pretty good it's pretty you know it is good yeah i'm, I'm <laughs> held to the top so was your first break in animation on darkwing duck yeah yeah, um, I was I was in this improv group with Kevin Hopps, who was a writer at at, at Disney, um, and he asked if I wanted to like give it a try. And I met with Ted Stones, the producer of the show, and he saw a show that I was in, and I I was reading the complete uh, Sherlock Holmes stories at the time, and I was like we should do something with a Moriarty character, but call him Moriarty and make him a mole. And he's an underground guy who's, and Ted was like, uh, I want to do that. Uh, I don't want you to write it though. So that became the pilot episode of, of Darkwing Duck and Ted wrote it. And they gave me this other story that nobody knew what to do with. And they were like, write this one that nobody likes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I wrote that one. And then I wrote two or three uh, more Kind of terrible scripts and then about four or five scripts and i started to get the hang of it which is hard to do now uh it's, the environment is not such that you can necessarily fail for four or five scripts before you figure it out uh but at the time uh disney they had they had to hire like 26 writers in a month or something like they went on this oh my god yeah they they just like were starting this massive amount of work and they had to do this huge hiring spree i'm making these numbers up but it was a lot yeah. uh, and so they hired all these people including me i was like uh, they literally like went around like vacuuming up writers and i got sucked in with all all the others and and it wound up working out but like i feel like at any other time i was so lucky that i got to mess up for like months before I finally went, Oh, I see what a story is. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's like, it's hard to get that freedom now. Yeah. Because now people care back then. It was just like, <laughs> I don't know what it's a cartoon thing. <laughs> I don't know. Splat. And I feel like you hit the perfect trajectory where animation was about to explode, oh, yeah. especially in kids programming. And I wonder if that was, planned in a sense by you did you see what was coming there or was just like wherever the opportunity came and that's where you're going to take it and run with it no i always really like i always really loved cartoons and i wanted to do it it wasn't just like oh i guess we'll do this like i was super into it um i had like the the i think the month that i got the job on darkwing i had done a storyboard test for the simpsons hmm. um so i was like super into working in animation it just wasn't plan a um so it wasn't it wasn't like i mean i am joking around about it but it wasn't a consolation prize like i love the business i love the industry and i love the work um but uh but yeah it was just at a time and the simpsons was like a new show at that yeah i think it, it, it had premiered in 89 i think yeah um so yeah so there was like this it was just the beginning of this giant animation explosion and like i mean none of us had any idea 
I think Darkwing was Darkwing might have been the 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 might have been the first show that that like premiered as part of the Disney Afternoon when they did that whole package. I'm not sure because I think there were it was like the third show on there, but I think the two other ones had already premiered somewhere else, maybe. But it was like the beginning of that whole thing, which wound up being a huge deal for for Disney, and then. Weekenders wound up being part of One Saturday Morning, which was a whole other huge deal for Disney. Um, so, I don't know. It was neat that I got to be involved with that. Uh, I, I get to work on the first, the first direct-to-video uh, uh, feature sequel that they did, uh, <laughs> Return of Jafar, which started the, the whole trend of uh, uh, lower-budget direct-to-video sequels. Uh, milking the the enormous cash cow of their <laughs> film library, uh, so no, I, I mean I got to be involved in some some really fun things that sort of felt like they were the beginning of something. Sure, yeah, I could speak only to myself, and I was probably around eight years old at the time that the Weekenders came out, and it was everything and a lot of stuff that you were actually helping out in, you know, House of Mouse, which I absolutely loved, and Aladdin the TV show, anything. It was, you know, DuckTales, Darkwing Duck. It was just everything on at that time was just, I was consuming as much as I could. And it was so formative for not only myself, but I bet a generation of millennials and why people keep rewatching this stuff even 20 years later. It's kind of insane. And I think it speaks to the level of quality in the writing, but also, at least for the Weekenders, the diversity of the cast even 20 years ago, where you're looking at, you know, male, female, different backgrounds, different races, different religions. How big in terms of, we'll get to the pitch in a little bit, but in terms of just developing the show, how important was that to actually reflect what you were experiencing as a kid? Um, I don't like. I don't really remember thinking about it that much. It was just like oh, I want a variety of characters in here. And then there was a point, like there was a point where where the show was already in production, where I like just suddenly went, "Oh crap, nobody's Latin!" Like <laughs> it's weird because like that was a big part of the San Diego experience. Yeah. Um, and I, I was just like. Oh, I just, I mean, I randomly, like I made up a nationality for one of the characters. It was like, oh, they could have been South American or something. <laughs> so that, that I felt stupid for probably years after that. But yeah, I mean, it just, it just seemed like, I don't know, you wanted a variety of characters and uh, the, like the um, Carver character, I don't, I think he was originally Egyptian. Um. And we had a bunch of people audition. It was like, we really liked Phil. And it was like, I don't know, I guess we'll just make him black. Um, and then we did that. So it wasn't, wasn't so much planned out. It was like getting the right people involved. And then, you know, then you sort of tweak the characters to fit the person. Gotcha. Um, and then, and Tina, I guess Tino was theoretically Italian, but like, it didn't seem like he had any. He didn't have any Italian heritage <laughs> or anything. Like, I don't know. I like the name, I guess. Uh, I want to ask about the names, though, because the names are so... I didn't know anyone named Carver. I didn't know anyone named Tino or, or Lore or, you know, Trish, even though I know Trish was a short name for a much longer Russian name that I can't pronounce. But how did you come up with these names? They were so original. And I remember her name. It was, it was, it was, it was Tish, not Trish. It was uh, Petra Tishkovna. Uh, and I, I don't know. I, like, I remember, I remember sitting around and like, I think I named Tino first and I don't remember why, but like, and then just like saying different names together until I liked the way they sounded together. 
So it, it would literally was just like a collection of sounds. Um, and like pe people assume that Carver was named after George Washington Carver um, because he was a you know, famous uh, historical black figure, but he actually was Egyptian at the part, at the point where he got the name Carver. <laughs> and apparently there was a, there's a whole um, thing in uh, uh, popular culture where uh, white guys like me have a tendency to name black characters something ending in er. Uh, <laughs> So uh, apparently I was part of that without really intending to because he did already have that name before we settled on his race. Um, but yeah, the other, I mean, I know Tish's last name was Katsafrakis, which was a name that I heard somewhere and I was like, I have no idea. And it's, I guess it's a Greek name, but when I first heard it, I was like, that could be Japanese, that could be Eastern European. I have no idea what that name is. Yeah. And I wanted something that didn't sound specifically anything. And then as it turned out, if you're Greek, you're like, yeah, that's a Greek name. But like, again, to me, it's, it could be anything. Uh, and I think Lore got named, I think maybe Lore got named last and it was just sort of like what fit in and sounded good with like Tino Carver, Lore Tish. Okay, that sounds good. Um, and the weird thing was her name was Laura McQuarrie and there was a Laura McCreary who worked at Disney at the time who I didn't know. And people- Oh, really? That, yeah, that I had named the character after her. <laughs> no, I didn't even know who she was. <laughs> but it's it's kind of interesting because i saw that video that you put out kind of like coming up with the you know the idea for the weekenders and how it kind of got pitched and it seems like the pitch for my listeners who maybe didn't see that video it was kind of an afterthought right it was weird yeah i mean i guess you're supposed to plan for these <laughs> i mean okay in retrospect i probably should have known that when i was going into a room of like the 20 top executives at disney that I would be expected to have some idea what I was going to do. Yeah. <laughs> but instead, I, they, they, it, was like a, it was like a whole pitch day. Like they had a bunch of things pitching. I know uh, uh, Jim, Jim Jenkins, the guy who created the Doug cartoon oh, was yeah. in there before me. But I was literally like sitting in the lobby outside and all of these executives were in there. And Michael Eisner, who I had never met, but you know, was the, the head guy. And he had just been, in court like the day before because Jeffrey Katzenberg was suing people. There was this whole legal thing. So I was sitting waiting to go in and there were all these trades spread on the table with like pictures of Michael Eisner, like ah! <laughs> angrily yelling and like all these things about how he like blew his snack in court and all this, which I think was an exaggeration. But so I was, I'm like looking at the stuff going, I'm going to go and pitch to this guy. And then at one point, the doors to the conference room just flew open and this <laughs> giant came storming out. And it was Eisner and like walking right toward me. And he's like, I think he might have, he might be taller than me. He's like six, four or five or something. He's a big man. He came storming right toward me and then right past me because he was going to the bathroom. But, and he was like, hey, how you doing? And I kept going. But it was just this terrifying moment. So by the time I got in there, I was in there and Jim Jenkins was, they would let you in like in groups of two. And so he was pitching his thing and he had like this diorama with little figures that moved around and he and another guy and they were doing all this stuff and they had like dialogue written and they had like a show that they were putting on on a little stage. And I was sitting there with <laughs> literally a piece of paper with a like temp weekenders logo on the back of it and on the back side that i would be reading from there was nothing at all 
I, and I was just sitting there. It was like that moment where you're at, you're at show and tell with like the weird old penny you found that's a little bent. <laughs> and the person in front of you has a trained bear who's riding a unicycle. And you're like, <laughs> I am ill-prepared. So that, yeah, I can't go after that guy. <laughs> and I just got up there and started talking, and I guess it worked out okay. Because yeah, the I mean, the only thing they say was like they loved the show, they hated the name, and we were <laughs> like, and and like, and to this day, I have no idea where the name came from. Because when I pitched the show originally, which might have been what you were talking about, I'm talking about the the pitch to the executives. But when I pitched the show originally, I was just like kids on the weekend. It didn't have a name. And they liked it and they bought it. And when the contracts came back, they said the weekenders on them. And I was like, I wonder who called it that. Like no one ever <laughs> said, like someone just like had to type a name for the show. And they were like, I don't know, the weekenders. <laughs> and then Eisner hated that title. And we were like, we will absolutely change that. And for the months that we were developing the show, we pitched all these other titles and no one ever liked anything. And it just wanted huh. to stay <laughs> the weekenders because we couldn't come up with anything better. And honestly, it works. The Weekenders yeah. is exactly right. It really works. Yeah. It, it seems like it'd be weird to call it anything else now. But at the time, he was like, yeah. I don't know. It sounds like it'd be like luggage or something. <laughs> but no, he said, it sounds, like, it sounds like a light romantic comedy from the 60s. And I was like, oh, all right. Okay. We'll definitely <laughs> change that, sir. Yes, anything. You're going to green light the show? Okay. <laughs> It seemed like such a simple idea that we're going to show these kids only on the weekends. Pretty much everything on TV at the time is showing them what they're like Monday through Friday, what they're like, you know, during school. And this seemed like such a novel idea. And it, right now it seems simple, but at the time it was so revolutionary in a sense. When did that come to you as like, this is going to be the premise and we're going to have the title cards that show Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? Well, I mean, originally, so I had, I had just done, I don't remember what I had done right before this. Was it Earthworm Jim? I don't know, I think I did the Mr. Potato Head show. It was a puppet show that didn't last. Um, but I, I had done a bunch of weird stuff. And I was like, I don't know, I guess I'll pitch, I'll go back to Disney because I had left there. And I'll, I'll just find out what they want. And I'll pitch them what they want. Like, it was, I was selling out, basically. I was just like, whatever. I'm not going to keep trying to do this weird artsy stuff. I'll just like, whatever you guys want. And I went in and met with them. And I said, just tell me, you know, like, what kind of shows are you looking for? I mean, like, obviously not another one of these animated sitcoms about middle school kids, because you got so many of those. And they were like, no, yeah, we want another. <laughs> we want, like a sitcom about middle schoolers, but animated. And I was like, all right. And I went home and I was like, I don't know, they got recess. What's another time period? Lunch? Can we do lunch? The weekend? maybe and like wrote down a bunch of things and then when i went into pitch i actually didn't do anything with it i developed these like two or three other shows in great detail and went in and pitched all the other shows and they were like meh 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 not that interested what else you got and i had i had just written kids on the weekend and then nothing else and i was like oh, i was thinking about doing a thing about kids on the weekend and they're like tell us what that show would be and i was like i don't have any idea. so i just started telling them about stuff i did on the weekend when i was a kid um, in San Diego, and and it was, I mean, it was kind of like it was an interesting place. Um, I mean, it was a super boring place, but also like kind of super interesting. And like we did weird stuff, like we we hung out in canyons, and we would go to the airport and like steal leftovers from people's <laughs> room service trays in the airport hotels. Like 
Uh, and the, the middle school that I went to, uh, uh, Roosevelt Middle School, or what was it, junior high school at the time in San Diego, is across the fence from the San Diego Zoo. So literally, like, you, you would be jogging, and there would be a camel, right? <laughs> like, three feet away from you, going, what are you running from, dude? You know, <laughs> right there. And, and there was a joke about my school on the tram ride at the zoo, because the tallest fence in the San Diego Zoo is the one that keeps the kids out of it. <laughs> um, which they didn't mention was because it was actually in the handball courts and they were trying to keep the, the ball. Uh. <laughs> so I just like, there were a lot of like kind of odd things about growing up there. And, uh, and like being, you know, like being able to go to the zoo every day if I wanted to, just stuff like that. So I talked about those things and they were interested in that and they were like okay we'll buy that show and i was like i have no idea what you're talking about because you're definitely not i i just told you <laughs> a thing that happened with my friend steve and now you think this is a show <laughs> so then we had to like go and make up what a show would be with those parameters and that at some point it was just like well if we're actually if we're seeing them on the weekend it seems like we should Follow them through the weekend. It's like the weekend is very specific. I mean, you get out of school on Friday and then you get Saturday and Sunday. So, you know, we should do title cards that show that. And then at some point we were like, oh, crap, it feels weird for them to be wearing the same clothes all the time. So we were one of the first shows where the characters would change clothes. Um, so we came up with like, like every character had like five different shirts and four different pants or something. <laughs> you could like mix and match. Um, so a lot of that stuff just, just came out of like, well, you know, I mean, this is what the show is called. So we kind of have to do that. And then at some point I was like, you know, really like, I don't, if I'm a kid in school, I don't think I want to watch kids in school. So we decided that we would never see, I think there's one like flashback in a classroom or something. But apart from that, I don't think we ever see a school setting. We maybe see the school grounds and we meet some of the teachers, but we never see them in school. Um, cause it was just, you know, that seems like the last thing you want to watch on TV. Oh yeah. And also it just made it seem like, cause as a kid, the weekends seem like they last forever. Yeah. And you know, as you get older, right. It seems like the weekend just fly by weeks fly by, but at that age, it seems like an eternity and you really have a full day each day. Even if you're just hanging out, make believing, doing whatever, it still feels like you had a full long day yeah. and it makes it, you know, and that's really what you captured with the show. And that's what I think. And even rewatching episodes. I forgot how funny the show is. It's incredible. Even the breaking the fourth wall where Tino's talking directly to the audience. And there's so much adult humor in the show that now going back at it, you know, as a 28 year old, I'm looking at it and I'm just like, this is hysterical where Tino's mom is like, you know, Tino's like, should I get out of the room? So you could say bad words now, you know? Uh -huh. So it's just like, it's, it's so funny. And even just the cutting to, you know, Tino's brain where it's like, you know, it does not compute and the different, you know, either music or just different sound bites. It really makes it, timeless and i don't know if there's a question here just really some praise to you and what your team has done with the show but i guess how much did you want to show and even you know looking to the camera even though there's no camera per se in animation but talking to the audience directly at times it seems like that was really changing what was on television hold on doug give me a minute to tell my listeners about plexiderm summer is over and fall is upon us with so much changing it's increasingly difficult to find that extra time for you the time you need to take care of yourself and look your best. 
With Plexiderm, all you need is 10 minutes. And you could look 10 years younger? Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that gives your appearance the right kind of changes. You can try a six application trial pack for just $14.95 with free shipping when you visit triplaxiderm.com and use the code BELIEVE. Again, that's triplaxiderm.com and use the code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, at checkout. Make those wrinkles, lines, just disappear with Plaxiderm. And now, back to the show. It was weird because the year that the show premiered, like three other shows premiered that had direct address in them. Hmm. Um, and I, I can't remember what the shows, did they do it on like, I don't know, maybe like 30 something or maybe it was something else from the same producers, but there were a bunch of shows all of a sudden that had the characters speaking directly to camera. Uh, and all the other ones premiered before us. So it looked like we were just, <laughs> no, we were working on this like two years ago. Yeah. But yeah, there was like, it was, there was a weird thing in the zeitgeist where there was a lot of that all of a sudden. Yeah. But I mean, to, I know it, it partly came out of the fact that I, I like having narrators on shows. Um, and it partly came out of us having to be an, what they call an educational qualifying show. So we had to have a pro-social educational message in every episode. And it was easier to do that if we could have the character kind of sum up what it was. At the end. True. And then once you start summing up what it is at the end, it's just like, oh, this is deadly. Like, but this has to be funny. <laughs> like, whatever we do at the end, it, it's got to it's gotta feel like it, it's in there because it's funny, not it's in there because we get to count as an educational show if we do it. <laughs> um, and, and then it just sort of became the style of the show. I know we decided kind of late in the game, uh, there's a, a thing where whenever he talks to the camera, the background sort of grays out. Um, and it was, just, we found that it was just too jarring. Like he would talk to camera and start the direct address stuff. And you would be like, what, what's happening? <laughs> like we had to figure out some way to separate him from the, from the, you know, the traditional narrative storytelling for that to make. Yeah. And it wasn't enough to just have him look at camera because with an animated character, it's not enough of a difference to like look directly into the camera. You sort of used to seeing that angle on their eyes anyway. So, yeah. So yeah, after the fact, we started doing this thing where we, we went to black and white or it was actually like 90% black and white with the backgrounds and that just became a stylistic thing. Yeah. And I have to say the intro music to the weekenders, I think is in the hall of fame of best intro music to any kids program. And I didn't even realize at the time that that was Wayne Brady yeah. performing it. How did that come about? Was that something that Disney channel did on their, or, you know, Toon Disney and Disney did on their own, or was that your collaboration? I know, you know, uh, Roger Neal yeah. helped write the song. How did that come about? Um, I think I wrote some lyrics and Roger Neal wrote the music and that I, we always sort of thought of the lyrics as being a placeholder uh, and then no one liked them. And it was like, well, it, it was a placeholder. That was our plan the whole time. Uh, and we tried, we tried a couple of things. We tried some variations on it and uh, Barry Blumberg who ran uh, Disney TV animation at the time was like, he wasn't liking anything we did. And I was like, Oh, Barry really likes Wayne Brady. And I know Wayne Brady a little bit because I used to do improv with him. So I bet I could get Wayne Brady to do this and he would be awesome. Like, yeah, I mean, he's a fantastic singer. Um, yeah. And he, and just a, like, I mean, he's an all around great guy. Um, 
I like I did improv with him a few times in the nineties. And I think I ran into him like 10 years later and he like not only remembered me, but like remembered the names of family members. Oh my God. <laughs> How did he do that? <laughs> That's why he's Wayne Brady. <laughs> but, uh, but, and he's a, a great improviser and, and we were like, you know, could you come in and, uh, you know, write some lyrics for this and, and sing them. And he was like, yeah, sure. Um, and I remember, coming into, I think we recorded it at uh, oh, it was some historic recording studio in uh, Hollywood. And uh, it was, I think it was the Capitol Records building, actually. It was like a real recording studio. I was like, this is where actual music gets made. They were like, <laughs> like signed pictures of like, like, like Frank Sinatra on the walls, so like old time singers. Um, and then the Weekenders. <laughs> as I was walking in, I see Wayne in his car, scribbling furiously. And I'm like, oh my God, he's writing the song now that he's gonna record in like 10 minutes. <laughs> he's like, he had like months to work on it and like showed up and he was like, oh, I'm supposed to write this thing? <laughs> but he's a song improviser and he's super good at it. So he went in and like just nailed it instantly. I think we had like one note on one line or something like that. Wow. It was great. And it was like, we all loved it. And then I was like, I know Barry's going to like it because he loves Wayne Brady. And it <laughs> so. Awesome. And I'm sure you may know this stat, but The Weekenders is known as the show that killed Pokemon. They had a 54-week streak at the top of the ratings for Saturday morning cartoons. Do you take pride in that? I know I was a huge Pokemon fan at the time. I don't know about yourself, but you got to take pride in that. Uh, the Weekenders there up, you know, upended them as the number one spot. Um, it was like one of my favorite moments ever. I, I was in a meeting. We were discussing, I think, the first season of Weekenders and what was wrong with it and what we were going to do moving into the second season. And we had this, this uh, person who had done the, uh, the, the like focus testing market research stuff for the show, and they were going over all the, the details of what they determined was wrong with the show. And they were, I felt they were a little smug. Hmm. Um, so they were like, you know, here's what the kids don't like and they don't like this and they don't like that. And here's how you could improve the show. And they're going over all these details and I'm just sitting there going, Oh, and then the door opens and someone leans in and says, we just beat Pokemon. And, he goes, <laughs> the door. and I like <laughs> put my feet up on the table. <laughs> I'm like, I think we're done here. <laughs> yeah. Tell me more about what's wrong with the show that just beat Pokemon. <laughs> so that, that was a, just the timing of it, like, could, I could not have been, I would have paid that person $1,000 to come in at that moment. It was so perfect. And I don't think we, I don't think we ever beat Pokemon again. It was just that one week. But it was the perfect week for it to happen. Oh, yeah. I had to feel good. <laughs> So it seems like the Weekenders kind of wrapped up around 2004, right around the time of Dave the Barbarian. And I'm curious, what was that transition like? Had you already pitched Dave the Barbarian while you were still working on the Weekenders and getting that ready to go? I feel like I might have been, I'm not sure, I might have been done with the Weekend. There, there, was, there was a fairly significant gap, I think, between when we made the last episode and when they started airing the last chunk of them. So I might have finished the Weekenders Honestly, I, I think I may have even worked on another show in between, but I don't remember. But it wasn't, it wasn't a huge gap. Um, but then the development 
process for Dave the Barbarian was about a year. So, so you know, there was some time in between those. Um, and also, they I think when they when they when they optioned Dave the Barbarian, they picked up another thing that I pitched in the same meeting that we never did anything with, but we were developing for a while. Sure. So, you know, there was various stuff going on. Um, but yeah, I spent a year in this building that I think Disney still <laughs> uses that is in Glendale. And I, re I remember when we moved into this building, I was like, is this that built? Like I had heard years earlier that we were gonna move into this building, but then they decided not to because it was contaminated in hmm. some way. And so we moved in this building and I was like, wait a second, wasn't that building in Glendale? <laughs> Let me just do a little like Google search, like for the address of this building and contamination. And then all these hits come up. <laughs> it turns out that it used to be like an aeronautics company or something like that. And they had a, like a rocket fuel spill. And it was a super oh fun cleanup site. And all this boiled down to, I mean, literally it, it was like, yeah, if you see a puddle in the, in the parking lot, don't drink it. Like that was the only problem. <laughs> there was nothing wrong with the building. There was no, like if they wanted to build underground parking, they would have had to bring in hazmat suits. Like the groundwater was contaminated. The building itself yeah. was fine. But I just remember like shortly after we moved in there, like going around to everyone and going like, you guys know about this? <laughs> and then people talked about it for years. And I was like, I was the guy who figured that out. I think it got blown <laughs> out of proportion. It really was fine. <laughs> yeah. But so the shows oh didn't God. really overlap, but they were know, not that far apart. And you've worked on so many shows do you have a personal favorite or is it like your kids and you can't really choose a favorite i mean i think it's probably dave the barbarian because when i met my wife producer <laughs> so we met online and we met for coffee um and I, like i had told her that i worked in animation and uh she, so we like knew a little bit about each other but like we start talking over coffee and she tells me about like her favorite cartoon that she used to have to be home every Sunday to watch and it was Dave the Barbarian and I was oh, like wow. I'm Dave the Barbarian <laughs> it was my show like that's me up there that you were watching all those years ago and she was like I kind of like kind of had a feeling that like this show was going to be important <laughs> to me in the future she did not have the tattoo at that time that might have been weird. Uh, <laughs> I got the tattoo later. Um, but yeah, so like I kind of feel like I met my wife because of the show. Oh, yeah. Um, so that was sort of a big deal. And it, I don't know, it was always like in some, like if I were making that show now, there are probably things I would do differently, but it was the show that seemed like the most me. Um, like where I just kind of got to do what I wanted to do with the show. And it yeah. didn't really fit with anything else that Disney had at the time. Like it was an odd show for them. I know when they did the focus testing, every kid who watched it were, was like, this is a Cartoon Network show, right? <laughs> uh, it's Disney Channel. And they were like, no, it's not a Disney Channel show. <laughs> it's yeah. a Cartoon Network show. Um, but you know, it, was, it was super fun to do. I wish we could have done more. Yeah. So I have to ask you, during the times of you know, quarantine and coronavirus, how has your day-to-day -day changed? It seems like animation is just, you know, keeping going oh, yeah. and it hasn't really affected it, but I'm just curious to get your perspective on it. It's weird. If you told me a few years ago there was going to be a worldwide disaster, 
and the most protected job <laughs> was going to be working in animation. <laughs> would have been like, I, I question the veracity of your statement, sir. Um, but it's true. I mean, as it turns out, literally the entire process can be accomplished by people working at home. Like yeah. the, the big hang up for a little while was like, how is this going to work with recording the voices? Um, but some of the places literally just like mail an iPad and a microphone to the voice actors and like tell them how to set it up. And before the record session, there's like a half hour period where they're working with the engineer to make sure the sound is okay. And you get pretty good sound quality. Like if they have to start streaming yeah. or something. I mean, basically we do what we're doing right now. Yeah. And that goes on the air. Like it kind of works. So. Oh yeah. And we were already, <clears throat> Candy and I are, I, we can talk about the show, can't we? Oh yeah. The show that we're producing a show together uh, called Samurai Rabbit, the Usagi Chronicles based on the Usagi Ujimbo comics that have been, they're highly respected graphic novels that, that have been published by Stan Sakai for 30 years now or something. <clears throat> and this is a spin-off, more kid-friendly, science fiction-y version of the show. Um, but we were working on that show and we were already working at home. Like, I think a couple weeks after lockdown was when we were supposed to start going into the office. So all that happened was we didn't start having to drive for like two hours every day. <laughs> so I'm sure you missed that. Yeah, it was kind of like, <laughs> like we don't ever want to go back to working in an office. <laughs> like, yeah. We would like the pandemic to go away, please. We'd like to be able to like go out and do stuff again, but we don't really miss the office part of it so much. Yeah. I mean, we're yeah. still going insane being at home. <laughs> yeah. I like, I mean, some days we will just go out and drive for like six hours just to be like the car is like a giant hamster ball that we just <laughs> roll around the world in to get some experience of like, you can sort of pretend that things are normal for a while. Sure. Um, but in terms of work, I mean, I don't know. I think maybe we get more done this way. As someone who's gotten into stand-up comedy like yourself, how do you see the future of live performance? Do you think it's going to be over Zoom? How are you going to get audience reaction? It seems like, you know, live performance musicians, comics, anyone kind of performing to an audience, it's a strange place to be. You know, I, I had just started doing, I did stand-up years and years ago, like 35 years ago, and I had just started doing it again. Uh, my wife, Candy, and I both started just locally doing shows. Um, and when lockdown happened, I did one show on Second Life, actually, hmm. that Candy helped organize. Um, and it was fun, but I didn't really feel like doing more. So I haven't done anything since then. A lot of people I know are still doing Zoom shows. They're doing more shows than ever. They're doing Zoom shows like everywhere. Yeah. And it's it's kind of cool because they can do a show like in Michigan. You know, they don't really yeah, it's have true. to go anywhere. And you can see, you know, kind of big name people very easily in the comfort of your own home. But my impression is that that people are not they're not getting the same vibe from the experience. I mean, it's very different. Yeah. I feel like a stand-up's job is to kind of feed off the audience yeah. and get their reaction and build off of that. It's tough when there's a delay or you're not hearing it. And yeah. I feel like that's really tough to do. Yeah, it's weird because, I mean, I, th I think the, the, 
what a standup is doing is relating to the audience more than telling jokes. Yeah. Like that, that the key thing is your relationship with the audience. And when you sort of take that away, it basically becomes what I feel like a lot of comedy used to be like maybe prior to the seventies, which is just someone doing a rehearsed bit. So you have like a prepared series of jokes and you're doing, you're reciting a monologue basically, which can be super funny and fantastic, yeah. but it's not the same thing. It's just a very different vibe. And sure. I, ha I haven't, I haven't, I've seen like two shows. <clears throat> I haven't seen a lot of it. It, it looked to me like it was going to, like some people who were not great at nightclub standup were going to be fantastic at this. <laughs> some people yeah. who were fantastic in-person standups were not going to be good at this. Like it was just a different thing. Um, and like, I hope it's working out well for people. I haven't talked to anyone recently. I do know some people who are doing tons and tons of shows. I don't know if they're liking it. Yeah. Uh, I know, so you know, I live in Los Angeles, and I love going to the comedy store and you know seeing live comedy. I really hope that does not go away. Yeah, but no, I guess we'll see. We've been ordering food from the the place Flappers in Burbank is is where we mostly did shows, and it's a great place. And it's more, it's a little bit more of a restaurant than a lot of yeah. Like they take the food a little more seriously, so we've been ordering food from there to try to help them stay in in, in business because they reopened and then had to close again almost completely. Yeah. And, it's really tough. Obviously, oh, yeah. This is not news to anyone. <laughs> There's a pandemic. Have you heard? <laughs> I think we all know. We're all in the middle of it. Um, but, yeah, it feels like it has really changed that landscape. And we have some friends who have a band, and they're recording stuff together remotely and, like, putting out songs, but they can't tour and they can't perform. Yeah. And that's where musicians make a lot of their money from is touring. Yeah. So it's it's a really weird thing for them. Should I plug them too? Sure. I should plug them too. It's Steam Powered Giraffe. They're Steam Powered Giraffe. Yeah. 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 Um, they're fantastic. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I guess I can say that we're developing a show with them that we hope to be pitching <laughs> soon. Um, but we love those guys, and uh, and we're so glad that they're able to still put music out during this, but like, it's just, it's so frustrating to not be able to perform and connect and have that live experience. Cause they are, they're very much a live performance cause they're a band, but they're, they're minds and comedians. And in, in some ways, like the comedy is really their main thing. Like the music is, I think is great. Uh, <laughs> they're so funny. I mean, they do sort of like an, it's almost an improv show with songs. Um, and there goes the cat. <laughs> so I have to ask, this is a really important question. And, you know, I hope you don't take offense to it. But how do you choose which color to dye your mohawk? It's a complicated process. There's a lot of math involved. <laughs> a lot of astrology. Yeah. Um, I don't know how, but this time I think like we ordered some colors in the mail and it was like, I don't know that one. It was, it's usually somewhere in the blue to pink range. Uh, a lot of times we dye it purple because purple fades to pink and then it just looks like you meant for it to be pink. Like the, the blue sometimes will fade to like kind of a, kind of a crappy greenish, like <laughs> everyone knows you didn't mean for it to be that color, but purple, yeah. you, can, you can totally sell as, 
That, that still seems fresh after a month or two. <laughs> I don't know if blue is supposed to represent something with the quarantine or maybe some optimism. I don't know. No, although it occurred to me today that uh, I, th- there, was a, there was a background character on The Weekenders who was based on me, and I think he had blue hair because I believe I had blue hair at that time, but not the Mohawk, but blue hair. So it seemed appropriate for this interview that it's, it's back to that color. <laughs> Yeah, it's a podcast. No one could see you, but uh, I'm sure they could look you up and they could see the Mohawk. Uh, Doug, I can't thank you enough for your time. I wanted to end on five rapid fire questions okay. if you're ready. Yes. Uh, any TV shows you're currently binging during this quarantine? Doom Patrol. Oh, it's incredible. DC Universe, yeah. Yeah. Well, once we figured out how to get DC Universe. Yes, HBO Max really opened up the doors, at least for me to watch it. But that's, that's a, that's, I was a huge fan of the original comic book and the 90s. Grant Morrison, I think, comic. Hmm. Apparently, not a huge fan. Since now, I'm like, what was the guy's name? <laughs> um, and then, and then we started watching the show. And my wife Candy, who was not really expecting to get hooked on it, also got super hooked. Yeah, it's such an odd show. You know, it's it's definitely I recommend it to everyone. I love these, you know, darker, grittier kind of superhero anti-Marvel shows like The Boys on Amazon. I'm not sure if you got a chance to watch that I have one. Not but, yet, no, but that oh, highly recommended from it. the Preacher people, and we love Preacher, so yeah, yeah, I think you'll really like it. But yeah, Doom Patrol, even just having on Brendan Fraser and Matt Bomer, and kind of making their characters such that you really can't see what they look like is such an odd but interesting choice. Yeah. But uh, next question, we got too bogged down there. Uh, do you have a favorite restaurant in LA? Hmm. Damn, what's our favorite? Smokehouse, maybe? Smokehouse has a lot of history. That's a good answer. Flappers. Mm-hmm. I should say Flappers because we love Flappers. Flappers. I'll go with that. Do you have a, a favorite comedian or a favorite couple of comedians? Maybe ones from back then, maybe some working now. Oh, Ron Funches. Um, who else? I like Tom Segura a lot. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I'm 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 missing an obvious first choice. Maria Bamford. Oh, she's great. Yeah. yeah. There's so many. There's so many good people. Oh, Jen Cober. Love Jen Cober. Waffles. <laughs> <laughs> I could be making this person up. I don't think you know who Jen Cober is. When I say waffles, no. it's a thing that she says and I laugh. But I could be making someone up and making up their catchphrase. Because waffle, I would never know. It sounds like a made-up catchphrase. It's you know what I know. Yeah, I'm not here to judge. Maybe it is a catchphrase. I have to say, you do have a kind of resemblance to Patton Oswalt. I don't know if you've gotten that before, but I definitely see I it. I got that before he was famous. Because I did when I did that, I did this puppet show, the Mr. Potato Head show. Deborah Wilson from Mad TV was on it, and she was like, "You remind me of my friend Patton." And I had <laughs> seen him a couple of times at. Uh, Largo, he used to do the show at the club. Um, so, I, like, I knew who he was kind of before he hit, and I was like, yeah, I can kind of, yeah, I see that. <laughs> but we had, like, some mutual friends, and he, I've, I've worked with him a few times in various cartoons. And he, yeah, uh, I mean, he is, uh, I probably should have said him first. He is one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, he's great. Okay, back to the non-rapid fire questions here. Uh, were there any other kid shows at the time, early two thousands, that you were you know really admired, or you were jealous of that you really wanted to write on those shows? Any other shows that you weren't a part of that you really admired? Uh, yeah, like so many. Like the, I guess the Tick was a little earlier than that, but I always loved the Tick. Um, what was early nineties? 
Oh, they all blur together now. I'm sorry, I don't have a, 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 a better, more appropriate answer from that era. Darn it. Uh, what about a favorite kid show that you just had growing up? Well, I love the Looney Tunes. Those were, I mean, that was mostly what was on. Like, they didn't show Disney stuff much on TV, um, but uh, Looney Tunes were on, like, all the time. So I was really... Like that was my, that was my jam. Uh, and then I would watch everything else because what are you going to do? Not watch cartoons. I mean, <laughs> like I watched Scooby-Doo. I don't know if I ever really got into Scooby-Doo, but I watched every episode of it. It's just like, you can't not watch Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Uh, last one here. If Disney channel approached you about possibly bringing back the weekenders would you sign up to write it? And in what format would you like to see if they said maybe we do a series or a, you know, a TV movie or maybe we make it live action now? What would you like to see from the universe? I think a gritty live action re- <laughs> of the, those characters now. Yeah, doing drugs on the weekend. <laughs> after, after they've completely hit the skids. <laughs> maybe they form some sort of band together and now they're, you know, they broke up. Can they, can they be a superhero team? Can I Maybe. can I vote for that? <laughs> I like to call why not like the loser superhero team like Doom Patrol or Umbrella Academy like yeah just, they're superheroes but they never quite accomplish anything and it's really more about their personal problems. Exactly. Now they don't do anything during the week and it's just the weekend. Uh-huh. Got it, <laughs> Doug. I can't thank you enough for your time and thank your wife for me for putting us in touch. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Candy. She says you're welcome. I can probably hear that. <laughs> I would like to thank my guest, Doug Langdale, for coming on the podcast. Oh yeah, I wanted to mention this last week, but myself and Allison McLean Merrill, who writes for Screen Rant and came on the podcast for the Horse Sense episode, we are putting together our definitive list of the top 60 DCOMs right up until High School Musical came out. We're hoping to get this out to you before the end of October, which coincides right with the anniversary of the first ever DCOM being released. So not only will we be publishing the article, but Allison is going to come on the podcast and we're going to break down the top 10 movies. Not sure my listeners want the six-hour podcast going through all 60, but who knows? We'll see the numbers of the first and, you know, maybe we keep going. But you know what? It's, it's amazing that this is something I've always wanted to do for a very long time and I couldn't think of a better person to do it with than someone who's as passionate, if not more passionate than I am about these Disney Channel original movies in Allison. It's amazing because you you read these articles from Vulture and other publications and you just think to yourself, who wrote this? You know, this is someone who definitely did not watch these movies. But I think Alice and I did a great job of balancing each other out and negotiating, you know, the top 10, the top 20, all the way down to 60. So I'm super excited to bring this to you in the next couple of weeks. Next week, we're going to be joined by Daphne Maxwell-Reed, who played Aunt Viv on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and definitely was a mother figure to a certain generation. You can subscribe to the Relunchables podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a rating or review. Five stars only. Until next time.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.